In today's episode, we are finishing up Mark chapter 7 with verses 24 through 37. Jesus embarks on a surprising detour that will radically expand the boundaries of his ministry. After meeting resistance from the religious leaders, Jesus withdraws from Galilee to the unlikely Gentile regions of Tyre and Sidon. There, he grapples with the determined faith of a Canaanite woman begging for his help. Later, in the Decapolis, Jesus performs a dramatic healing by, well, unconventional means, and then oddly prohibits the witnesses from sharing what happened. Why would Jesus venture into these pagan areas knowing it would create controversy? And what do his cryptic words and actions reveal about his true mission? Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, November 6th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, folks, help me welcome my guest this morning as we finish up Chapter 7. It's the Reverend Doug Minton. He's the pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Milford, Illinois. Good morning, Pastor Minton, and welcome back to the program. Morning, Pastor Drew. It's always a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm just happy to have you on. Um, you know, it's uh, we're, we're making our way through Mark. Everything's so fast-paced, and uh, we're finally, I cannot believe we're already at the end of Chapter 7. Uh, but I'm happy to have you here to open it up for us. Uh, before we dive into anything, would you lead us in a word of prayer, please? Yes, let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and all its many blessings. We thank you for all the blessings that you give us through your word, and especially in the section we open today where you go not to your own chosen people, but to those outside of that to remind us that as we, most of us, not being of Jewish blood, are also welcome into your family. We ask you to bless our time through this text this morning. Open my mouth and so that I may proclaim your word boldly and open the ears of our hearers so that they may hear in their hearts so that they may understand. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, uh, before we dive into our text, it'd be a good idea to catch people up. So let the people know what's been going on leading up to our section for today. All right, so we've had some of the major events at the end of chapter 6, being the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water, which has us close to where we end up today. So Jesus is doing this whole zigzag across the uh, area of Palestine in our text today. And then we've also had in the midst of there at the beginning of chapter 7, which we covered on Friday, that the Pharisees coming to Jesus about their traditions and their commandments and the things that his disciples won't do that they think are absolutely important. And so he has to explain exactly what does defile a person, which, as we recall, is not something that we take in, but it comes out from within. And so we see this, especially as we start right into talking in the regions of Tyre and Sidon, and then going out to the Decapolis. These are especially, according to the Pharisees, defiled places. And we'll talk about those as we get into each of those uh, sections of our text. 
All right, well, why don't we just go ahead and jump into the text. I'm going to be reading verses 24 through 30. Here we go. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. All right, we'll end there at the end of verse 30. So, uh, all right, this is a pretty, um, I guess, a pretty memorable text from the scriptures. In fact, it's also a contentious one because people don't always read it with the right understanding. Uh, we're going to hopefully fix that today for some of our listeners. But essentially, this woman comes to Jesus for help, and he, well, I guess to be the most crass about it, he calls her a dog and says, get lost. <laughs> so, so what is going on here? Surely Jesus isn't being hurtful to this woman. Take us through this, brother. All right, no, he's definitely not being hurtful. But let's get a little background before we get into the uh, comments on the dog. Right. We're, we're in the region of Tyre and Sidon. This has been historically non-Israelite territory. While Hiram, the king of Tyre, was a very close ally of David and Solomon, giving Solomon the lumber to build the temple, they are closely con Tyre is closely connected with Sidon, whose most memorable resident was their princess Jezebel. So this is where Jesus is. This is not necessarily friendly territory for for a Jewish man. Sure, and and so you know he's gone outside this area, but he he does that intentionally. Um, but he says he entered a house and didn't want anyone to know. Of course, it reminds us that he couldn't really be hidden. But so Jesus is in this territory, but it also seems like he's hiding out. Yes, it's it's almost like he's taking a mini vacation here for a moment. And then just to get away from the stresses of the all of the contention with the Pharisees in Jerusalem and Galilee. But then and. Mark uses this phrase, which I don't know if I've seen it anywhere else, when there are times where Jesus wants to go and be alone. But nowhere does it ever say, except for here, that he was, in the Greek, it would translate literally, he was unable to be hidden. So it was very noticeable that he was there. Even though he tried to keep a low profile, and maybe not cause too much of a stir among people. But it was not going to happen. Well, and as we've been seeing already, you know, Jesus was having trouble because the word of all the amazing things that he was doing and, and his teaching too, you know, he couldn't even enter towns openly, it, it tells us. So, you know, he, this was actually a logistical problem for Jesus. Um, of course, as God, you know, he wants to encounter as many people as possible, but he also has a mission to do. And that mission really doesn't include 
hanging around and healing just everybody who happens to come into his presence. So sometimes he's turning people away and we think that, well, that doesn't, that's not, you know, that's not very nice, Jesus. Sometimes he's hiding from the crowds, as I think is the intentions here at the beginning. But he's also purposefully making his way into this Gentile territory. I mean, God doesn't, is not a God of chaos. He's not doing anything by accident. So Jesus, uh, we, we uh, can presume, I think, safely that he knows he's going to encounter this woman. But this encounter with this woman really is laying out some good theology for even the listeners who might be hearing that um, there are two groups in play here. There is the lost house of the, uh, sorry, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and then there are everybody else. And Jesus's mission is pretty clear. So uh, yeah, I, I just think that's, uh, I think that's something that he's doing on purpose. Would you agree with that? Well, it's definitely something that he does on purpose. And like you said, God is not a God of chaos. He's got a very ordered, intentional way of doing this. And he is in Tyre and Sidon. Although I'm sure the apostles behind him are going, Lord, why are we here? <laughs> right. Of all the other places we could go, why here? And Jesus would probably turn to them and say, there is important things to do even here. And probably, as Mark is very apt to do, the one time that we have his favorite word immediately in our text is right after he's not able to be hidden. Immediately, this woman hears that Jesus is there because the word has spread and that you know people have heard what he has done. And she is hopeful that even though she is not a Jew, that he might have mercy on her. So she comes and she falls down at his feet, begging him, not for herself, but for her daughter. And then Mark brings out the fact that she is a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, which is part of that, uh, that amalgamation of peoples that happened in the Assyrian takeover of that area. Because Phoenicia was along the Mediterranean north of Tyre and Sidon, going around into what we now know as Turkey. And Syria we have as the, basically the same area that we recognize as Syria today. So she somehow has a ancestry in both of these groups. Right. Well, and, and of course, the term Syrophoenician, it was often used by the Romans to distinguish those Phoenicians who were from that Sir Syrian area from those who were from North Africa. But we also get a little informed from Matthew because Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman. And I think that adds a little color. Now, I know it's kind of bad form to be studying Mark and then go to Matthew for information. But I have to admit that the, the story is fleshed out a little more in Matthew. And so uh, I think it's worth bringing in that because Matthew includes her words, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And I think that's significant, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, a Canaanite, whatever you want to call her, but it's someone outside the house of Israel calling Jesus the son of David. Uh, that's significant, wouldn't you say? It is. And typically, there are a couple of times that I can think of in the Gospels where this happens. This is the first time, and then as we head into Thanksgiving at the end of this month, the gospel reading from Luke chapter 17, 
where you have the lepers uh, outside of the city in Samaria, in Samaria that cry out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. That these, these are the two times where that I can remember that we have people calling Jesus the Son of David in faith and not, as the Pharisees will, in a challenge as to, okay, prove to us that if you think you are the Son of David. Because that's who they were looking for. They were looking for someone to be just like David. And so as going back to the uh, differences between Matthew and Mark, that is always the issue in studying the Gospels, is that each Gospel writer has his own point of view that he is going for, his own uh, ideas of what he is wanting to bring out. So yes, Mark uses Syrophoenician, whether it's the actual areas of Syria and the northern part of Phoenicia, or if it's just the Roman uh, usage of that phrase to go with the other side of the Phoenicians, uh, either way. But then Matthew wants to bring out the Canaanite. And one of the things that has always interested me about that is that, okay, I, I wonder which Canaanite tribe she would mm -hmm. descend from. Right. But we can even get to the disciples of Jesus's day, and most of them probably couldn't tell you which tribe they descended from. Mm -hmm. I mean, some like Paul had great records who could tell you that he's from the tribe of Benjamin, but you have a lot of the, not only the lost house of Israel, as we talk about here, but also the lost tribes of Israel from the Assyrian exile. So we have a lot of different things going on in play here. Absolutely. And I, I think that Matthew's mention of Canaanite is meant to be, hmm, what's the word? I guess like a, a, sh a shock, right? It's, it's supposed to be like, whoa, a Canaanite is coming to someone. And not only is she coming to someone for help that's a Jew, but she's coming to one who she calls the son of David. And so if you juxtapose pardon me, the son of David's role as it relates to to the Canaanites, then really all she should really expect from him is not healing, but destruction, <laughs> because that's what Yahweh's will was for the Canaanites, that, that they should be destroyed. When she comes up to Jesus and says, son of David, really there's this admission of, uh, you know, I, I recognize that if you were the Messiah, you know, I should expect fulfillment of God's will from the old when the Canaanites were called to be destroyed. And yet, I have no one else to go to. And so the, it really demonstrates a knowledge of the religious and geopolitical situation on behalf of this woman, but it really shows great faith. Now, now while Matt Mark doesn't mention the Canaanites or any of that, he does make a point to say that she was a Gentile and that she's still coming to this Jew, this Jesus, this, um, you know, someone who's doing these miracle workers. And when Jesus confronts her with the reality that I think she knows well from Matthew, let the children be fed first, I think that's why we get sort of shocked that she doesn't get upset. She doesn't get upset. She just acknowledges and admits that, yeah, I'm not of the house of Israel, but who else can I go to? In many ways, brother, I kind of think this unnamed Canaanite, Syrophoenician, Gentile woman is, is 
as much uh, our spiritual mother as Gentiles as 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 Mary is a spiritual mother of all people. I mean, here we are coming to God and saying, you know, yes, Lord, we 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 know we don't deserve what you offer, but please give it to us anyway. And we and we do that in faith. And I think that's her demonstration of faith here. Exactly. Uh, as we go keep with Matthew in the Canaanite, I keep going back to, um, oh no, I just lost her name. Uh, in Jericho, Rahab, uh, the faith of that Canaanite woman who then gets grafted into not only the people of Israel, but into the ancestry of Jesus. So also you have that sort of spiritual motherhood, yes, here, as we have the idea of, you know, yes, let the children be fed first. You know, that is my top priority. But then she comes back and says, but you know, even, even the dogs under the table get to eat the crumbs that fall. You know, and I, and honestly, as we look to it and as she is saying it, she's saying, Lord, I just want a crumb. I don't need the whole big thing. I just need this one crumb. I have, uh, I have heard um, out in the interwebs uh, pastors of other traditions who have long, I'm afraid, lost their trust in the Bible, um, use this as an example of Jesus actually sinning. Um, and, and it, you know, it's it's really sad to hear uh, a Christian or someone who purports to be a Christian pastor attributing sin to our Lord, and yet that is the case. So they have actually, and I don't want to name names, but then the the, the message then turned to, well, this woman is kind of like standing up for her rights. She's not going to let Jesus treat her in a uh, racist or sexist way. And she basically got the best of Jesus. So believe it or not, I, I heard that there is uh, sermons out there like that. Uh, that's not at all what's going on. But I can, you can see why some weaker Christians may say, well, it doesn't seem very nice. Um, so we've started to unpack it a little bit, but I guess move a little bit into her response. Like she's not just sort of doing some mental gymnastics and she's got over on Jesus. Oh, I, I got you now. Rather, she is submitting to him. Take us through that, why this isn't sexist or racist or anything else someone might want to maliciously attribute to Jesus. Well, um, I, I've also heard some of those sermons and more of them that I have heard and seen have actually gone to, yes, Jesus is sinning in this moment. And the woman's response is her absolution of Jesus. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which goes into a whole different area that, okay, no, Jesus doesn't need absolution. When he is talking about throwing the children's bread to the dogs, he's recognizing what is going on in the world. And it's a situation that has always been in the world, as long as there have been more than two people, because there's always been a distinction between us and them. You know, Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, uh, we can go uh, free and slave, we can go on all kinds of different routes with this. But there's always been some aspect of you have us and them. And they are always kind of seen as just kind of 
just kind of dogs. And it's not necessarily here like these guys will want to take it as the scavenger dogs that are running around like really more uh, semi-tame wolves than actual what we would think of as dogs as pets. But that as she says that even the dogs under the table, I mean, so these are the ones that are cared for. These are the ones that are that are fed by the master so that they see the place where they're loved, not the scavengers that are out always looking for, I have to take care of myself and there's nobody else watching out for me. So even in this statement, he is showing that, yes, just like Rahab, just like others of the of Canaanite descent and any Gentile descent at all, have always been part of his plan for salvation, has always been part of being the people of God. And yes, there were the commands of God to exterminate the Canaanites, but there are some Canaanites that did come to faith, that did, you know, Rahab being one of them, the easiest one to come up with, but that you have here people who do actually hear the word of God and it takes root in their hearts. And somehow she has heard about Jesus. We're not told how much she knows about Jesus other than that he might be able to help her with her daughter. And as a parent, if there is something that is going on with our child, we are going to consider just about every option, no matter how ludicrous an option it is, to help our child, because that's our role as parents. Indeed, indeed. And and I, I think, obviously, it's sinful and blasphemous to attribute sin to Jesus. Um, even if you feel like he's sinning or something, you have to conclude that he's not and figure out where you've gone wrong. I mean, that's just simply letting the scriptures rule your own emotions and reason. Um, but your explanation makes perfect sense. I mean, Jesus is just acknowledging the realities of the situation. Yes, I have come to the to the Israelites, right? He, he's not defined here. It is in Matthew, but, you know, we kind of do know. He says when he says children who he's talking about. And when she admits that she doesn't deserve anything, in many ways her faith is greater than those who are of the house of Abraham who think that they are merely entitled uh, to, to God's grace because of their ethnicity. And Jesus makes it clear elsewhere, and I believe here, that that is not the case. That those, you know, who are my mother and my brothers? Uh, who is Israel? Well, it is those who have trust in the promise. And this woman, despite being clearly emphasized as someone who's an outsider, obviously has trust in Jesus, and I think that's the key. Exactly. And we have here, and yes, to our our ears, we always have to understand that we are, if there is an issue with how we think something is being said, first and foremost, we have to look to see if the issue is with ourselves and with our own thought process. But again, even when Jesus is telling her no initially, it's very important that Mark puts out here, let the children be fed first. It's not that there's not room for you. It's that there is a priority in line. I have come first, as he says in Matthew, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
and then to everybody else. You know, there is that opening there for her to come and to express her faith as she does. And so that we may see him say to her, you know, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Uh, very much like other times where Jesus speaks. And I was just going through this with my confirmation class a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about forgive us our trespasses in the Lord's Prayer. Going through the story of the sinful woman in the Pharisee's house. And Jesus saying, Go, your faith has saved you. This is basically what he is saying here as well. Your faith has saved your daughter. The demon has left her. And so that here, also using her own words, here is the crumb that you wanted. You could have so much more, but here is what you have asked for. Go in peace. Well, I think that's a good place for us to take a break, and we'll think about those words. And folks, don't go anywhere, because when we return, Pastor Benton and I will pick back up where we left off. We'll finish up Chapter 7, because Jesus has more miracle work to do. So don't go anywhere. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. This morning is the Reverend Doug Menton. He's the pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Milford, Illinois. Friends, remember, if you have any feedback, questions, perspectives to share on Mark, or you just want to say hello, well, you can reach out to me via email at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Just search for Phil Boo. You'll know which one's me. All right. Well, Pastor Menton, back to our text. Um, anything else you want to uh, maybe close up with our previous section before we move on to the next? Or are you ready just to move on? Well, just one last thing for sure. for the last verse in the in verse thirty. You know, she she hears Jesus's words, and then she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. You know, she hears the words of Jesus and immediately goes. Very much in line with as. Jesus says in Matthew's version of this, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done as you desire. That, you know, here is the great faith in action, is that she immediately just goes to check on her daughter. She doesn't question as to, okay, are you really sure, Jesus? Because like in other miracles, don't you, don't you have to actually be there? But Jesus here also shows that, no, he can 
perform a miracle in any part of the world, just as we recognize and confess every time we come to the Lord's Supper, that the body and blood of Jesus are there on our altar, whether it's in Laverne, whether it's in Milford, whether it's anywhere else in all the world, that that is truly a miracle that Jesus performs every Sunday and that he doesn't have to be physically there to do it. I think that's a great point. I mean, because she, as you just said, she doesn't say, well, you know, well, come with me just in case. But no, she just heads home. You're right. And of course, she finds that Jesus's words were indeed true. You know, go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Not the only time Jesus has said that either. You know, Jesus back in John chapter four, he says, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And here it's the same way. He says, go. So she is demonstrating this great faith. I mean, even above some others, like we think of Lazarus and and Martha confronts Jesus after Lazarus dies. And we know that Jesus tarries a little bit so that, well, well, I think the best interpretation is so that Lazarus would die and he could perform this miracle. But he he arrives and she says, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But even this woman, you know, who's not as close to Jesus as Martha and Mary and Lazarus were, she just goes. She's like, okay, you said it. I'll do it. I'll go. So I think that is a beautiful demonstration of faith. It is. And it shows just simply the Holy Spirit at work, creating and strengthening the faith within us. Because you have this woman here who has only heard of Jesus and comes to him, where you have Mary and Martha, who, as far as we can tell from the Gospels, this is where Jesus spends his time whenever he's in Jerusalem. So they are very familiar right. with him. And so, and sometimes familiarity does cloud us in what we think should be done. Mm, that's true. That's true. I hadn't thought of that. Well, let's see what Jesus does next. We're going to move into verse 31. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. So taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven, and he sighed, and he said to him, Ephaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. All right, that's the end of our chapter and the end of our text for today. So uh, back up to the top, though. So he, he returns from the region of Tyre where, you know, he had gone to escape the crowds. But as we said earlier, I believe that he'd gone purposefully to um, encounter this woman to give a, a foretaste of the message and the, the dist- destination that Christ's ministry would eventually take him. But he heads back, and people are still bringing to Jesus folks who need his help. Take us through this part, brother. Okay, so as I said in the beginning, Jesus does this whole zigzag in this part of the chapter because he goes from Tyre and Sidon on the western side of Palestine along the Mediterranean. Now he's gone completely to the other side of Palestine, to the Decapolis, which was a Roman 
confederation of ten cities, among which being Damascus, probably the capital of it. And this is definitely also not gent, or this is also not Jewish territory. This is definitely Gentile territory, as they are very Greek oriented in their ways. So another place where we're not expecting Jesus to be. But this isn't the only time that Jesus is out in this place. Uh, we have the casting out of the demons from Legion that takes place either among the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes, depending on which gospel reading and which uh, text you see. Both of those are cities in the Decapolis, as well as wherever we are in the geography here. But it all it all take most of it is on the eastern side of the Jordan surrounding the Sea of Galilee. So this is that opposite side of the sea from like Capernaum and Bethsaida. And so again, yes, we still have people bringing to Jesus those who need help. And I find it interesting that we have two different words here to describe this man at the beginning, before the miracle is taking place and afterwards. Because in other places, we have them just as mute and unable unable to speak, as well, as well as being deaf. But in the original, when the ESV has, he had a speech impediment. The word there is literally translated tongue-tied. So some sort of st stuttering or stammering or something that, and also could just be having been probably deaf from birth, that deaf people have a definite way of speaking that is hard to understand at times for those who are not accustomed to hearing deaf people talk. So we've got that up front, but then we have at the end, he makes the mute to speak. You know, those who are unable to utter a sound to be able to speak. So we have both of them describing this man who receives this healing from Jesus. And I just find it interesting that Mark uses both words. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and I, I, I do see that Jesus, he's going through the, these Gentile territories. And, you know, you have the Decapolis, as you've already explained. Um, you did mention uh, Gadara and the Gerasenes. And then there's Caesarea Philippi, and there's some a couple others. You know, Jesus is doing these miracles in these Gentile cities, but he's also doing it in the context of having told other people you know, his, that, you know, his time's not come or he's, he's trying to kind of hide out from people. So I, I also wonder, and I don't want to detract from, from where we're at now, but I also wonder if part of Jesus's mission to be here is to let things cool down in Jewish territories. Um, so he can then serve these people because eventually, of course, the message is for all people. Uh, but this, this guy, he comes and yes, it's a real event, but I think it's also very, very symbolic of what's going to come in the future. You have someone who is unable to speak very well, unable to hear, can't hear the message, can't speak the message, and yet Jesus opens up his both uh, speaking abilities and his ability to hear. And of course, well, you know, now he could in, uh, symbolically hear the message of God and proclaim it. So I wonder if you've ever thought, is, is, is there any significance to maybe Mark's including this event? Because undoubtedly, Jesus did a lot more than what is recorded. Maybe Mark is including this event 
as as sort of a symbolic or a stand-in or an epitome of what is to come? I I think there's a lot to that because as we flip over to Matthew for a second, which you know neither one of us want to do because we want to study Mark. <laughs> right. But when Matthew talks about what Jesus does after talking with the Syrophoenician woman, he just goes on and talks about a great number of healings that he did, including the lame and the deaf and the blind and all of these, but doesn't come out to any one of them in particular. But Mark, I think, wants to take a moment, and he is he is the speed demon of the Gospels because <laughs> he's always yeah. wanting to go and get get to the next thing real quick. But here he takes a moment to stop and says, okay, no, this, this is something important here. And I, I believe there is, while there is the historical fact of this healing, I believe there is also a lot of spiritual insight and symbolism we can pull out of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, because each of us, as Paul writes, are not only deaf and mute by nature, to spiritual things, but we're also dead in our trespasses and sins. And as the apostles and the disciples following Jesus from Tyre were begging Jesus to have the Canaanite woman leave because they were bugging, she was bugging them. So also now he has, I think this comes right on the heels of it to show, okay, you wouldn't even have what you have if I didn't open up your ears and loosen your tongue, just like I'm doing with this man. Oh yeah. I mean, that'll preach as we say, right? I mean, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those, when I went through seminary, I had Dale Meyer for Ham two. And one of the sermons we had to preach was a miracle sermon. And he was very adamant to say that, okay, well, you have to understand the historical value of the miracle. You also have to understand the personal value to the person receiving the miracle, mm-hmm. as well as what can we learn from it. And if you don't have those three things in the sermon, don't even bother preaching it. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. You know, because and, and, we are we are certainly a people who appreciate context. We we want to know not just the surface level, but as as you put, but maybe in a different way, you know, we want to know what it meant to the people there, why the person wrote it down, why the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to include this and not something else. And I think all that goes into really seeing the, the fullness of what Jesus is doing. So he takes him aside from the crowd privately. He puts his fingers into his ears and he spits and he touches his tongue. Uh, the touching his tongue, the reference there is the mute man's tongue. Jesus Jesus isn't touching his own tongue. He's touching the mute man's tongue. I just want to get that correct. Right? Right. And uh, I've heard other pastors on uh, this program in previous uh, times of going through Mark, having reminded that there are places and church fathers who have taken this and not only, not as Jesus is not touching the man's tongue with like his finger, which is what we would normally think of. But there are some who will say that he's actually spitting on the man's tongue. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which, yeah, is not exactly the prettiest picture. But, no, no. <laughs> but this is, as you said at the very beginning of the broadcast this morning, 
this is a very unconventional way of doing it mm-hmm. and a very mechanical way because Jesus is showing in real time, in concrete ways, what he does spiritually through the Holy Spirit and opening our ears to hear his message, to loosening our tongues so that we may proclaim. And that is exactly what he is doing here. Yes, the man truly desires, I believe, to be relieved of these of these things that have bothered him possibly all of his life. But it is also there as Jesus is, although we don't like to necessarily dwell on this too much, Jesus is the great teacher. You know, we people want to take that too far as that's all Jesus was. But everything Jesus does, there is some lesson for somebody to learn. And I believe for the disciples, having just come off of this, okay, we're off in pagan territory yet again. Maybe they never even left it, but they are like, okay, we're here. What? Why are we here? Can't we go back to Capernaum? Can't we go back to Bethsaida? I mean, yes, okay, they're not exactly thrilled with you in Jerusalem, but hey, I'd rather be in Jerusalem than in the Decapolis. Right, right. I mean, there, but, there may be even a little bit of danger for them being out there. I mean, the unknown guy coming in, stirring up trouble, a bunch of people following him, this rowdy bunch of Jews coming over into our Greek Gentile territory. I mean, yeah, it's, it, it also shows us that Jesus and his disciples, despite maybe their uncomfortableness with it, that they're going out to where the people are. They aren't just setting up shop and hoping everybody will come to them, even when they could have fully expected that would happen because there were so many people coming to them, and yet he still saw to go out to others. So he puts his fingers into his ears. After spitting, touched his tongue. Very interesting spin on that. I actually hadn't heard that. I'm going to have to do some, do some research on that. But then he looks up to heaven. He sighed, and he says to him, Ephaphatha. He sighed. That just seems like an, another interesting part of the way Jesus is doing this. He's going through very much a a ritual, and this right on the heels of him simply telling the other woman, nope, just go, and she'll be fine. But here he goes through this whole rigmarole. Uh, For whose benefit is all of this? Is it for the deaf man because maybe he doesn't understand exactly what's going on? I mean, maybe the deaf man isn't himself going to Jesus and has faith and hope and trust in Jesus. Perhaps it's just those who kind of drug him down there, and they know that this Jesus can help him. I, I don't know. I, I don't know that we do know, but what are your thoughts? I think it's for the benefit of truly everyone, maybe except the deaf man. And when when you sigh, you exhale. And I think Jesus is doing this very purposely, also to remind the disciples, the people around them, and us reading it centuries later, that All of this, all of his miracles are all based in the Holy Spirit. Going all the way back to Genesis 2 and God breathing in the breath of life into Adam after he is formed from the ground. That here too, the opening of the ears, the loosing of the tongue is all through the power of the Holy Spirit. Not to say that Jesus can't do it on his own. But he's also setting the stage 
for the disciples and for everyone else that he's not always going to be here. He's not always going to be physically present with us. And having here a small, minor, probably very overlooked prophecy of the sending of the Spirit among us. Yeah, I think all of that makes a lot of sense because we are looking at a Jesus who is demonstrating his divinity. I mean, that's why he's doing it. I mean, it certainly benefits the deaf man, and it certainly, um, I guess, verifies his message. But the, the larger point is that he is giving everybody every reason to both believe and trust that he has power over the things that he says he has power over. And so if he can heal demons from people, if he can heal those who are blind and, and have speech impediments, then he can forgive sins. And ultimately, that's where we're going with all of this. Right. And that is exactly what brings us to verse 36. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. It is that faith, that especially that newness of faith that comes in, that you want to tell people about this, that you're excited about this. Uh, I think with, uh, with my kids, and I'm sure you've had this with your kids as well, and many of the readers have, they, they learn something new to them in school. And it can be something as simple as, you know, being in kindergarten and, and tying their shoe for the first time by themselves. And they get excited about that right. because, you know, it's something new, something they've learned that is exciting, that they don't need somebody else's help with anymore. So also, I think there is that bit as well among the people is that, oh, this, this is something new. We don't, we don't have people going around the Decapolis every day, healing people of their deafness or loosing their tongues or as other any other miracles that he did during the same time this is something new and so that we we feel the need to go and say okay no we need to tell people about this it does raise the question though that was jesus uh, well gosh manipulating is probably not the right word but was jesus uh, relying on the human psychology of us, you know, the more he told them to not do it, the more they did. Is it that Jesus really wanted them to go out and tell people, but he's he's kind of finessing the way they think? Um, or is Jesus concerned about something like them focusing more on the miracle than the message? And so he's saying, okay, I don't want just people flocking to me because they know I can do miracles. I want them to see something deeper. As you know, this has always been kind of a struggle. Like, why does Jesus, yeah, practically he wants to be able to move freely, but why does Jesus keep telling people not to tell other people about what he's doing? Well, and there are multiple things I can come up with for this. Uh, this is not very long after the feeding of the 5,000, where we have at the end of one of the gospels, I can't remember, I think it might be John, that they wanted to make him king because, well, they ate the bread and had the fish. Oh, right, sure. Uh, so the, 
this is not very far removed from that in Mark's gospel. You also have, also going to John uh, chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, where Mary says that they've run out of wine. Mm -hmm. And Jesus has to say, my hour has not yet come. You know, it is not time for me to be glorified yet. It is not time for me to be out and about doing things in a very public way. But also, I think here in the Decapolis, there is that idea of, I'm not going to be here long term. I'm here right now. So you can't go out, you, you don't need to go out telling people to come see this guy. And when they get here, I'm not here. Mm. My my goal is not to be here forever. Because, again, going back to the Syrophoenician woman, let the children be fed first. You know, the, the people of Israel are Jesus's top priority in the healings, in the teachings. So it is this section here where we have kind of a break from that and a break from his typical modus operandi to go out to the gen to firmly Gentile areas, but to also show the disciples that, okay, these people are welcome here too, but it is not quite their time. Well, I think that's where we're going to have to leave it, brother, but I am so thankful that you were my guest this morning, folks. It's been the Reverend Doug Minton, pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Milford, Illinois. Brother, thanks for being on the show again. I look forward to having you back on. Thank you. It's a joy and a pleasure always to be on here. And may God's blessings be upon all of our hearers today. Thanks, brother. Well, folks, tomorrow when we gather again, we'll be taking up Mark chapter 8. Jesus performs miracles yet again that reveal his divine power and also his compassion. He feeds the 4,000 with scarce food, and he heals a blind man. He also warns his disciples to beware of the dangerous leaven, the influence of the Pharisees and Herod. And despite witnessing Jesus' wonders, the disciples are still struggling with spiritual blindness, and they misunderstand his teachings. Yet Jesus patiently ministers to them and all who need him. So that's what we'll cover tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.